really the person who's responsible for us all being here together this week. I'd like to speak of the meaning and the significance of the Buddha. The meaning for us as practitioners, the meaning of the Buddha in these times. There are many levels to this understanding. We can understand the Buddha as an historical person. Somebody who lived 2,500 years ago and was born in such and such a family and they lived out the particular circumstances and details of his life. So there's the personal story of Siddhartha Gautama, which was his name. We can understand the Buddha also as a basic archetype of humanity. That is, as an archetype embodying the qualities of an awakened mind. So that's on a whole other level of understanding. On this archetypal level, we can understand his life not simply as one person's personal story, but really as an unfolding of a sacred mythological journey. Now sometimes when we hear the word mythological, we might think it's imaginary or in some way unreal. But I think mythological has a deeper significance or the function of myth. That is, the function of myth is to universalize what is particular. And so understanding the Buddha as an archetype of humanity, as living out this great mythological sacred journey, takes the particular circumstances of his life and universalizes it so that we all actually can connect. There's a third meaning of Buddha, the historical person, universal <coughs> archetype. Buddha also means or can be understood as the basic elements of experience. That is the elements or the dharmas. It's one of the meanings of the word dharma is element. The elements of mind, the elements of body. There's a story of one monk who had been so enraptured by the physical beauty of the Buddha that it said he would always sit up front and just be staring, be gazing at his form. And at one point the Buddha is said to have reprimanded him. He said, you could look at this physical form for a hundred years and you wouldn't see the Buddha. That only those who see or understand the Dharma see the Buddha. And so that's another whole meaning. Now sometimes some of us come into this room and we bow or pay respects to the Buddha image. What is that about, really? Now, it's not a very Western custom. In Asia, people are bowing a lot in different Asian cultures. Here, that's not generally how we show respect. Maybe it's because in our culture we generally don't show respect. 
which I think actually is true. But, <laughs> but having spent so much time in Asia, you know, and sort of gotten into bowing, it, it's really a very beautiful thing to do. When I come in and bow to the Buddha, can, various things are going on. Sometimes I take a moment and actually imagine that it is the Buddha in person there. You know, and it's amazing what that does just for my mind and my heart. It's like drop into the heart and acknowledging a being who embodies great love, great compassion, great wisdom. And it's a way of opening to something greater than myself. So there's a very beautiful moment there. You could also bow in the sense of bowing to emptiness. You know, there's one of the most beautiful images I have of Deepama, is her, her being in this hall, coming in, doing the three bows to the Buddha. And it was done with, it was done with such beauty and humility, but not the humility of someone there being humble. It was the humility of there not being anyone there to be proud. And it was the most beautiful thing to observe. It was, it was like love and emptiness bowing to love and emptiness. And so this is another meaning, another way we can understand the Buddha. When we see the Buddha in all of these ways, as the historical person, as an archetype of humanity, as the, as the Dharma, as elements of experience, what that helps us to do is to actually put our own experience in a much larger context. We begin to universalize our own experience through our understanding of the Buddha's life. Sometimes I think about people who have been the world's great explorers, you know, in any field. You think of the great explorers of the planet, or of space, or in art, or in science. People who are playing at the edge of the unknown. And sometimes here in the winter going out into the woods and cross-country skiing, just out in the middle of the woods and it's beautiful and it's pristine and sometimes I just have thoughts of what it must have been like for people like, I don't know, Lewis and Clark or, you know, just these, these people who went across the country when it was really unexplored, you know, for many. And just the courage and the constancy and the fascination. And it's easy to imagine that but what I find is that it's also quite easy to overlook what must have been the daily irritants, you know, of the bad food and the mosquitoes and the this and the that. Well, we're on a similar journey. You know, we're on a journey into the unknown, and the Buddha's great journey was a journey into the unknown.
We have to see the ups and the downs and the difficulties of our practice, which come day to day and sitting to sitting, and some sittings you know, are wonderful and open and you're feeling a lot of love, and other sittings, there's all the doubt and the frustration, and the heart feels closed and contracted. All of this is part of something much bigger. And it helps to have a sense of the context of the larger journey. We're really pushing at the boundaries of what we know. We're pushing at the boundaries of our capacity for love, our capacity for compassion. This journey, the archetypal, mythological, spiritual journey of awakening, was described very uh, clearly by the great student and scholar of myth, Joseph Campbell. And he wrote about it in a book called Hero with a Thousand Faces. And in that book, he uses the Buddha's life as an example of this, of this journey. The first of the stages is called the call to destiny, or the call to awakening. And it happens when something occurs in our lives which really makes us question how we're living. You know, we go along caught up in the habits and routines of our daily life, and then in some way we, we get this call to awaken. Something happens that makes us begin questioning. What is our life about? Where are we going? What choices are we making? It's when we have that sense that conventional understanding is not sufficient for us. Are we really looking for something else? The conventional understanding of the world, and our world in particular, is contained within a single verb. And that is the verb to have. Our world really revolves around this verb. We have possessions, we have relationships, we have work, we have a mind, we have a body, it's really interesting how our very language is holding us in the prison of self and possession. Our language keeps reinforcing. Eric Fromm, the, I guess he was a Swiss psychologist, he had a wonderful little epigram. I am what I have. <laughs> you know, and it's really true. We define ourselves by what we have, even when it's as intimate as this mind-body. It's as if there's somebody who possesses it, and our lives revolve around that. But there's a huge problem with this. Because every single thing that we have is subject to loss. Not subject, we will definitely lose at one point or another, everything that we have. 
possessions, relationships, situations, this body. So when we're living in this way, in the verb to have, it necessarily brings us a feeling of dis-ease, of anxiety, of discontent. Something is not quite right. And yet, until we have this call to awakening, we don't know anything else. And so our whole life is simply the perpetuation of this in one form or another. In the early life of the Bodhisattva, which is what the Buddha was called before his enlightenment, Bodhisattva means being being of enlightenment or on the path to full awakening. The Bodhisattva very much lived in the world to have. He was born as a prince and he had all the luxuries and sense pleasures and you know, his father was the king and loving relationships and all kinds of worldly knowledge and skills. He was living very much in the world that we live in. And his father, the king, represented all of these worldly values. When the Bodhisattva wanted to leave home in search of, in search of awakening, his father was not happy. And he wants him to stay there and become the next king. Now, does it sound familiar? Because he represented the same values which are prevalent in our own society. And for us, it's kind of funny because even the Buddha has been co-opted in our culture by this verb to have. I'd like to read to you something. What I'm going to read has a, has a big picture of a Buddha here. It can take several lifetimes to reach a state of inner peace and tranquility, or it can take a couple of weeks. <laughs> Concentrate deeply. Think about a 14-day ocean journey to Singapore or Bali, Thailand or China. Days when your every whim is anticipated, instantly met. Places where the sights, smells, lights are a sensual feast, imagination can't do justice. Now a flash of insight. Royal Caribbean will soon take you to the Far East. <laughs> it's a vacation that until now simply did not exist, but you can believe. Call for a free brochure, or ask your travel agent about the nirvana you have coming. <laughs> Don't put it off another lifetime. <laughs> so even nirvana, <laughs> the end of all craving, has been co-opted <laughs> by this verb to have. Well, for the Prince Siddhartha, his call to destiny, his call to awakening, happened when he renounced his household life. He began to deeply question these values. He came face to face with some realities of existence which awakened in him some very profound questions. 
coming face to face with the truth of old age, the truth of disease, the truth of death. One point he said, why should I, being subject to decay and death, also seek in my life that which is subject to decay and death? It's a very profound question. Why should we continue to seek that which is also impermanent and going to change and not satisfying? And yet we do, our life, that is samsara. It is this, it's this wheel of wanting. But wanting what? Wanting those things which are also subject to change, subject to loss. So the question for all of us, as it was for the Bodhisattva, where is the real value to be found? Now there are three powerful contemplations on death which awaken this call to destiny, which awaken us. These reflections can help us go from an intellectual appreciation of the Dharma, where we truly do appreciate it and respect it, to a very deep inner spiritual ardency, where awakening becomes the central point of our lives. It's a reflection on the inevitability of death. You know, it's so hidden in our culture, it's not talked about very much. But of course it's true. It's, it's not a morbid subject. It's just part of nature, part of how things are. Can we really reflect on our own and others? See, yes, this, this is what happens. Reflection on the uncertainty of time of death. You know, most of us live in the illusion that there's endless time in this life. And so we keep putting off the things that we value the most. The Buddha talked a lot about this reflection on the uncertain. We don't know. And to make that really alive and real for us. And the third reflection is knowing that the at the time of death, the only thing that it is of value will have been the cultivation of our own hearts and minds. No matter what we accumulate and what we've done in a worldly sense, at the time of death does not mean much. What will sustain us and what is of most value will be our understanding of the Dharma, our accomplishment of the Dharma. This is just a few lines from the Buddha's teaching where he said, young and old, foolish and wise, rich and poor, all keep dying. As a potter's clay vessels, large and small, fired and unfired, all end up broken so too life heads towards death. This is from one of Tibetan Rinpoche. I spent 20 years not wanting to practice Dharma. 
I spent the next 20 years thinking that I could practice later on. I spent another 20 years in other activities and regretting the fact that I hadn't engaged in practice. This is the story of my empty human life. You know, one thing that becomes increasingly clear, I think, to all of us as we get older is how fast it goes. <laughs> Just the older we get, it seems to go faster and faster for some reason. So we really need this call to awakening. This is a critical step in the spiritual journey. So these questions awakened in the Bodhisattva a real ardency. It awakened in him the energy of countless lifetimes of practice. Now what are we doing with our lives? What choices are we making? Our life is a succession of choices. Do we take care with them? And many people have these thoughts pass through the mind. But very often the thoughts come, we don't pay that much attention to them and we get re-immersed in the busyness of our lives. We need to listen to those voices. Each one of us has had some call to awakening or we wouldn't be here. And there's something powerful that's happened in each one of our lives that has called to us. Let me take a look at my life. What really is of importance? I had a particular call to awakening with respect to the metta practice. It was one time, I was in the Peace Corps uh, after college in Thailand. Then I came back to this country for a little bit, realized I needed a teacher and went back to India to look for somebody to practice with. And on my way to India, in one of my trips, I saw a movie, uh, maybe some of you remember it, it was called Charlie, which was taken from the short story Flowers for Algernon. And the story was, just to paraphrase very briefly, about some medical procedure or medicine, something in which somebody, who was mentally retarded, took the medicine and became brilliant, and then the medicine wore off at the very end of the movie and went back to the state that he was. But in the beginning of the movie, when it showed uh, this person, it showed how, how much cruelty there was, little cruelties, in how people were relating to him, you know, playing little practical jokes and this and that. And I just saw the movie, and I felt so deeply in myself the need to cultivate more metta, of just how important it is to strengthen that quality of love and care for everybody. And so we never know where where the call to awakening is going to come. It may come from a book, it may come from a movie, it may come from a person. But it's helpful if we listen to it. The second stage in this great mythological journey, the sacred journey of awakening, is called the Great Renunciation. 
In order to awaken to what are often hidden possibilities, we need to be willing to renounce our habitual ways of looking at things, of viewing things. Because our mind is caught in such strong patterns of habit. Things are not always what they seem to be. And there's a recent very striking example of this. It was in the papers a few weeks ago. You know, with some of the new experiments from the Hubble telescope. And they had been looking at one area of the sky somewhere near the Big Dipper, which they previously had thought was empty space. And they hadn't seen anything there. And then through the power of the Hubble telescope, they see that in that, and it was a very, I don't know how it's measured, but in astronomical terms, it was a very small little section of the sky. Through the Hubble telescope, they found, I, I can't actually remember the number, but it was like, 150 galaxies, or something like it was some. It was some number. Some. Now that's a lot to miss. <laughs> and can imagine. I mean, that's just what was revealed through a limited telescope, although a much more powerful one, in one tiny por- portion of the sky. Who knows? the magnitude of what's out there. And what's so amazing is that as immense as the universe is outwardly, that's how immense it is inwardly. And that's the great power of meditation as we refine the skills of concentration and awareness and openness. We begin to discover things that have previously been hidden, obscured. So we have to be willing to renounce, at least for a time, the conventional sense of how things are. Because they can actually keep us imprisoned in a very limited viewpoint. There's a lot more going on inside and outside than we expect. The spiritual path, the essence of this renunciation is the renunciation of having as being our core value. We go from the verb to have to the verb to be. We go from having to being as what our value is. And one of the things that we discover that many people don't know, that the quality of our being is a much greater source of happiness than anything we could have. So this is a major turning point in how we orient our lives. It doesn't necessarily mean that we go off to a cave in the Himalayas and give everything up, although that's one option, and it might be an option worth considering. But most of us probably aren't going to do that. So we will still be living in the world of things, of having, but our value has changed, our reference point has changed. We begin to give more importance 
to how we are than what we have. Renunciation comes also right in our meditation practice. Can we let go of the discursive thoughts and come back to the metaphrase? Now, so many of our thoughts are very appealing. Some are not so appealing, but they seduce us. So we're doing the phrases, the mind is concentrated, something comes up in the mind, we get carried away. While we're lost in the thought, there's no option. But at that point, when we know that we're off, what's the choice that we make? Do we choose to continue with that thought, that distraction, or do we renounce that and come back to the phrases? Right there is a significant choice. There's a wonderful teaching from Saint Francis de Sales, who I believe was a French, French saint. He wrote, if the heart wanders or is distracted, bring it back to the point quite gently. And even if you did nothing during the whole of your hour, but bring your heart back, though it went away every time you brought it back, your hour would be very well employed. It's a very important teaching. It's the practice of the renunciation of the wandering mind. We become aware of it, we bring it back, even if that's all we're doing the whole hour. Our hour would be well employed because at a certain point the mind comes to rest. For the Buddha, the Bodhisattva, his great renunciation came in the form of leaving the palace. He left his family, he left his friends, he left his princely occupation. He left the busyness of the world. And he went and studied with different teachers, and he studied samadhi practice, concentration practice, reaching all the levels of jhana or absorption, deep states of concentration. He did six years of ascetic practices, intense ascetic disciplines, in a way he'd be starving himself and torturing the body in an effort to awaken. And after six years of that, he realized this is not the way, this is not helping. So he gave that up. He took some nourishment and he prepared himself for the third great stage in the spiritual journey. So there's the call to awakening, that which first wakes us up to the possibility. There's the great renunciation, where we reorient our lives. The third stage is called the great struggle. And Sharon described it last night, you know, in the description of the Bodhisattva sitting under the Bodhi tree facing all the forces of Mara. Every time we sit, it's as if we are sitting under the Bodhi tree, confronting Mara, confronting the forces of desire, of fear, of anger, of sloth. 
our own struggles have much greater import than might at first be apparent. Usually we're so caught up in the details of our own particular struggle. Now, I had a good sitting, I had a bad sitting, or there was, was pain in my knee, or you know, I was very sleepy. How often do we think of ourselves as being the bodhisattva under the Bodhi tree confronting the forces of Mara? We generally don't put ourselves in that mythological context, and yes, that actually is what's happening. Everything that happens when we sit is part of the unfolding journey of awakening. What's happening here is part of something much larger than we normally realize. And sometimes the times of greatest difficulty are the times that are most fruitful. This is Thomas Merton, you know, who was a wonderful being and was getting very interested in Buddhism at the end of his life. In fact, he died in Bangkok. He wrote, prayer and love are learned in the hour when prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. That's when prayer and love are learned. When prayer becomes impossible and the heart has turned to stone. So when you're sitting and your heart feels like stone, you're repeating the phrases and it feels flat. There's no feeling, there's no emotion. It's even hard to come back to the phrases. This is the practice. It's really through the willingness of being there and going through that and seeing what emerges from that. That's where love is learned. This is the meaning in the Buddhist scheme of things of the word effort. In Pali, the Pali word is virya, and it's usually translated as effort. But actually that translation can lead to some misunderstandings because effort has a lot of connotations in English which are not helpful. Wrongly understood, effort can lead to ambition, it can lead to expectation, it can lead to a lot of tension in our practice. You know, we create a lot of models of how we should be and then try to live up to those models and then either get very disappointed or discouraged or guilty or self-judgmental when we don't. Need to understand virya in a whole different way. The translation that I like the best, which captures the essence of this, is courageous heart. That's what virya means. It, it's that heart of courage which is willing to be with whatever situation presents itself. As the forces of Mara confront us, as we sit under the Bodhi tree, can we awaken that courageous heart, not to retreat from difficulties? It's the cultivation of this courageous heart 
that allows us to play at the edge of our limits, of our boundaries, precisely in those places where things get difficult. You know, you might have, I don't know if you saw the movie The Little Buddha. It had certain limitations as a movie. <laughs> but there were wonderful, it was a wonderful scene of the Bodhisattva under the tree as Mara came up and you know, tried to break his attentiveness and his concentration. And it was just played out in, in the movies, coming right to the edge of the greatest temptations and the greatest fears and the greatest doubts. That's where the courageous heart is necessary. That's the meaning of effort. Because we open to new possibilities then that go beyond our limits, go beyond our habits. And it's different for each one of us. That's why we can't compare one with the other. We all are practicing in our own way. There's one more Deepama story. The last time I saw her in India, we were in Bodh Gaya, which is the place the Buddha was enlightened. And so it was very inspiring being in Bodh Gaya, and I loved being with her. And one day, and she was very tiny, and I'm not so tiny. <laughs> so we were walking down the street, and we were holding, she was holding my hand. And she turned to me, and she said, I think you should sit for two days. And at first I thought she meant like a two-day retreat. But that's not what she meant. She, she meant sit down and don't get up for two days. Like a two-day sitting. And she herself had done longer than that. She had sat for four or five days without getting up. So I just looked at her and I left because it seemed so far beyond what I could even imagine. And she just looked at me and she said, don't be lazy. <laughs> so whatever our particular boundaries are, this stage of the great struggle which the Bodhisattva faced under the tree in his confrontation with Mara, and we face in our practice and in our lives whenever we're at the edge. This is a very powerful time in practice. You know, can we call upon or cultivate or strengthen or develop that heart of courage that's willing to be there? The last stage of the sacred journey called the Great Awakening, the Great Enlightenment. And for the Buddha, it happened on the particular night after he took nourishment, he sat down under the Bodhi tree, and he took the resolve, so it said, that he would not get up from his seat until he had attained perfect realization. Now, by way of appreciating the quality of the mind of the Buddha, Imagine coming into this hall with that determination. I'm not going to move from my seat until perfect realization has happened. That's an amazing strength of determination. Of course, maybe he knew it would happen that night. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, it did. And it's described, he described it later, 
in the three watches of the night, which is a three-hour period of a watch, he had different, different kinds of insights. And they really relate very much to the insights that we have, perhaps on a lesser scale. His first insight, the first part of his awakening, was of his looking back and seeing his endless past lives just this endless stream of birth and death and birth and death and all the particular circumstances of each life, seeing how insubstantial and empty was this process. Well, we may not be able to look back and see past lives, but we can look back in this life you know, and reflect on all the experiences that we've had, you know, the most wonderful experiences and the most terrible experiences. Where are they now? These events which we can get so caught up in and so entangled with and so enmeshed with. In this moment, where are they? It's as if we've led countless lifetimes within this life. And in looking back, we can see their insubstantiality. But we haven't yet freed ourselves from entanglement because as we look ahead we look ahead with fascination with attachment so this is an important understanding and this is one of the liberating insights that the Buddha had in the second watch of the night he understood the law of karma he saw not only his own past lives but also the destiny of all beings taking birth living their lives being reborn according to the actions that they did in their life, going to good places, going to not such good places. And it really awakened in him a tremendous compassion. And this is, this is an understanding that can awaken the compassion within us as well. When he saw beings like us, who wanted happiness, who were looking for happiness, who were seeking happiness, and through ignorance, doing the very actions which would lead to suffering. And this is the state of our world. We all want to be happy, and all beings want to be happy, and yet through not understanding the causes of happiness, we keep doing the very things which bring us and others pain. So when we understand this, begin to understand it, really there can be a great heartfelt compassion. Compassion for the ignorance that leads to so much suffering. So in the first watch of the night, he saw this endless procession of his own past rebirths. In the second watch of the night, he saw the law of karma play out in the destiny of beings, driven by ignorance. And in the third watch of the night, he realized the understanding of the Four Noble Truths of suffering and its cause and the end, and the way to the end of suffering. There's a very beautiful verse that is said he uttered in his heart, because as he penetrated into the Four Noble Truths, just as the morning star appeared at the sky, as he related afterwards, his heart, his mind opened to the unconditioned. 
And it said this verse occurred to him. This was the first, first words you know, in his heart after his enlightenment. I traveled through the rounds of countless births, seeking but not finding the builder of this house, this house of self. Sorrowful is birth again and again. O house builder, you have now been seen. You shall build no house again. Your rafters, as the defilements, have been broken. Your ridgepole, as ignorance, shattered. Achieved is the end of craving. My mind has attained to freedom, to the unconditioned. There's one line that recurs throughout the suttas, throughout the discourses, when beings get enlightened, and the songs of enlightenment of the nuns, of the monks, is a phrase that has always inspired me tremendously, uh, where they proclaim, done is what had to be done. You know, when I hear that, I think, won't it be nice <laughs> when we'll be able to sing that song of enlightenment? And done is what had to be done. And that's the journey that we're on. We're the doing what, what needs to be doing. So the Buddha was enlightened at the age of 35, and he spent <clears throat> the next 45 years going around and teaching. And really, the whole foundation the whole scope of the teachings uh, was built on the foundation of this understanding of the Four Noble Truths and the realization of emptiness, of selflessness. When he had his first 60 enlightened disciples, he did something very significant and it has a great bearing on our own practice. because it has to do with the motivation for our practice. When the first 60 disciples were enlightened, this is what he told them. He said, go forth, O bhikkhus, O monks, for the good of the many, for the happiness of the many, out of compassion for the world, for the good, benefit, and happiness of people and devas. Let not two go by one way. Teach the Dharma, excellent in the beginning, excellent in the middle, excellent at the end. Proclaim the noble life, altogether perfect and pure. Work for the good of others. You have done your duty. There's a very important point here about the motivation that we can cultivate in our practice. You know, we start with our individual call to awakening, call to destiny. But then we can come to a place where we see that we are not practicing for ourselves alone. <coughs> this is what's called in the Buddhist terminology uh, the seed or the ripening of bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is a Sanskrit word and it really means, literally, heart-mind of awakening, 
heart-mind of enlightenment. Bodhicitta is that motivation and aspiration that our practice be for the benefit, for the welfare of all. And a change takes place, and this has happened for me in the last several years of my practice, and it's been quite striking in terms of the effect of it. A change takes place when we go from the understanding that our practice will inevitably help other beings, because as we get more loving and more caring and more peaceful and more still and less judgmental, it can't help but influence the people around us. But the difference between seeing that as an effect of the practice, going to the place of seeking the welfare and benefit of others as the motivation for the practice. Do you see the difference? It brings it right to the front. It becomes the seed or the force behind what the energy of our efforts. And this is a tremendously powerful uh, transformation. Because then we're really doing our practice or motivated to do it out of a sense of compassion for the suffering in the world and a connectedness of metta with all beings. And it's not that we should expect this aspiration of bodhicitta to be, to be full-blown. It may be that we simply have the aspiration for this aspiration. You know, it can be a very tiny beginning, but it's like a tiny seed which can grow into a vast and fruitful tree. This is from the Dalai Lama about bodhicitta. He's such a wonderful being. (laughs) Speaking of my own experience, I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. (laughs) When I think about it, I cannot find in myself any specially good quality, except for one small thing. That is the positive mind, which I try to explain to others, and which I do my best to develop myself. Of course, there are moments when I do get angry, but in the depth of my heart, I do not hold a grudge against anyone. I cannot pretend that I am really able to practice bodhicitta, but it does give me tremendous inspiration. Deep inside me, I realize how valuable and beneficial it is. That is all. When people say that I have worked a lot for peace, I feel embarrassed. I feel like laughing. I don't think I have done very much for world peace. It's just that my practice is the peaceful path of kindness, love, compassion, and not harming others. This has become part of me. It is not something for which I have especially volunteered. I am simply a follower of the Buddha, and the Buddha taught that patience is the supreme means for transcending suffering. 
A good heart is the source of all happiness and joy, and we can all be good-hearted if we make an effort. But better still is to have bodhicitta, which is a good heart imbued with wisdom. It is the strong desire to attain enlightenment in order to deliver all beings from suffering and bring them to Buddhahood. This thought of helping others is rooted in compassion, which grows from a feeling of gratitude and love for beings who are afflicted by suffering. I sometimes wonder why a lot of people like me. <laughs> but maybe there is just this one small thing. <laughs> One very simple way of beginning the cultivation of bodhicitta, and you could try this if you like, is at the beginning of a sitting. You can make the aspiration, may I attain enlightenment for the welfare, for the benefit, for the awakening of all beings. It really sets or nurtures or waters that seed that this is why we're doing it, for the benefit of all. And at the end of a sitting, the merit of the practice can be dedicated, or the end of a day, and my practice be dedicated to the awakening of all beings. It takes us, and this is what was very helpful for me in the practice, it takes it out of the context of an individual struggle and puts it into something much bigger, much wider, much more boundless. And it ties so beautifully into our practice of metta and compassion and joy because we find that these feelings then become the motivation for our, medita our meditation practice. It's out of love, out of compassion that we make the effort to awaken. There's one expression of bodhicitta, which is, I think, quite beautiful. It comes from a famous teaching by Shantideva, who was an Indian adept. And I don't exactly remember the dates, 8th century or 9th century, something like that. He wrote a book called The Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And the book is an explanation and a description of how one can practice living as a bodhisattva. There was a being dedicated to the welfare of all. And one part of this book, Bodhisattva's Way of Life, there's one little section which is called The Seven Branch Prayer. And so I'd just like to read that little section. Bear in mind the era and time in, in which it was written, because a lot of the images and metaphors are from agrarian, rural Indian society. This is the seven-branch seven prayer. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road, 
For those who wish to go across the water, may I be a boat, a raft, a bridge. May I be as an isle for those who yearn for landfall, and a lamp for those who long for light, for those who need a resting place, a bed. I be a servant for all those who are in need of servant. May I be the wishing jewel, the vase of plenty, a word of power, and the supreme remedy. May I be the trees of miracles, and for every being the abundant cow. Like the great earth and the other elements, enduring as the sky itself endures, for the boundless multitude of living beings, may I be the ground and vessel of their life. Thus for every single thing that lives, in number like the boundless reaches of the sky, may I be their sustenance and nourishment until they pass beyond the bounds of suffering. This is a vast aspiration. <laughs> But if we can connect even with the tiniest seed of it, even if we can appreciate you know, the power of that aspiration, it transforms the quality of our practice. May the work we do, may all of our efforts be for the benefit of all beings. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.